Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. So as we begin today, I really want to take that some time to kind of situate ourselves back into this letter of 1 Corinthians. We've been at this for seven weeks now, something like that. Uh, we're roughly in like a third of through this series. Um, but there are a few reminders that I just kind of want to bring back up that I think are especially relevant now as we're transitioning into this new part of the letter where Paul is not just addressing things that he's heard, but things that the Corinthians themselves have said. So first, uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians is written to a specific community at a specific time regarding specific situations that were relevant to them. So at the beginning of the series, Mike talked about the reading first Corinthians is kind of like reading somebody else's mail. And here we're actually getting a piece of the mail from both the Corinthians and from Paul. We get two parts of the story, but not all of any of those parts. Uh, and and um, second, the overall context of first Corinthians is not simply this letter about what to do or just how to behave, uh, but it's about how being a community of those who are like united to Christ, living in God's kingdom, uh, live out this life of faith in various aspects. So it does have this very ethical tone, a lot of commands, the imperatives that Paul is giving to the church, but um, it's about life lived in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and living under his lordship as those created and saved by God. Um, so the book includes some of these things, but there are so many interactions between the Corinthians and between Paul that we don't actually get a chance to glimpse. Um, we don't have access to that, but there is this kind of broader theological context that we see from Paul's other letters, from the New Testament, from Scripture that we can look to. Um, and then third, there's a literary context here, right? Last chapter or last sermon, we talked about uh chapter six, which addresses sexual immorality, um, it kind of covers sex outside of marriage. Uh, but this passage kind of flowing from that, it covers sex within marriage. It's part of this larger logic of a text that's flowing kind of from these beginning pieces where he talks about resurrection, about these issues in the church, and now addressing things that they themselves have said. And then finally, um, this topic of sexuality in marriage is part of this broader thinking than is mentioned even in the book of First Corinthians, because Paul's influenced not just by uh, his time, um, but by Old Testament theology of marriage, by the Jewish thinking of his time and the Greek and Hellenistic culture that he's part of. So there's this cultural context piece. I'm going to try and draw out some of these implications here, but I think it's really important to situate us here at the beginning of this talk because uh, we're kind of jumping into the middle of the middle of a conversation between paul and the corinthian church um, and both the both paul and the corinthian church were deeply influenced by the thinking of their time we're just here in the middle of this story and we're looking at this tiny little sliver of a conversation that i think has to be broadened out to really appreciate what Paul is saying, why he's saying it, and how it might impact us in our time and our culture with the values and ideas that we ourselves are steeped in. So when uh, Paul begins, he's beginning here then with a quote um, to kind of look at what Paul says. He's, he's talking about this situation. He says, now, concerning the matters you wrote about. 
before Paul's talking about things he heard here he's talking about things that the Corinthians themselves think as they've expressed it most likely in a letter or some other form of communication to Paul himself uh, and the specific idea that he is responding to is in the NIV it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman um, some of your translations might say to touch a woman it's kind of just an idiom for uh, for what the NIV says here um, and the idea that Paul is responding to is pretty simply this. The Corinthians suggest that there is somehow a spiritual advantage to abstaining from sexual relations in general, including, it seems, for those who are already married. Uh, so Paul, Paul is responding to this specific situation and this idea. I'm going to be repeating this phrase over and over again because I really want to make sure that we're seeing what he's saying in the right light. Uh, so it's essential to actually hear what Paul's saying. And his response overall is fairly simple. Sure, there might be some kind of spiritual advantage to singleness, but that's not the case for those who are already married. There's something in marriage, which Paul doesn't elaborate here, I'm gonna touch on a little bit later, that creates a kind of exclusivity in regard to sexual relations. Uh, this exclusivity is also set in the context of mutuality. It's two people who mutually give to themselves. So whether or not those that believe that abstinence was more spiritual at the time were generally male or generally female isn't relevant here. Uh, the reality is for both men and women, Paul says, that sexual relations beyond, belong within this marriage relationship. And that's true in, in two different ways. Um, so first, sexual relations belong in the marriage relationship because sexual relations outside of marriage is not appropriate. This is something that Paul has strongly said in chapter six and is implicit here. Uh, they, they belong, sexual relations belong in the marriage relationship. And it's also true uh, in a second sense that relations within a marriage are important to maintain. And that's really the emphasis that Paul has here. They belong there. Uh, don't deprive each other and we'll get more into that but paul's kind of using this imagery that your bodies belong to yourself and also to your spouse it's a marital responsibility um, to offer self to your spouse sexually uh, and paul does give two reasons for this paul is saying on the one hand that marriage uh, that sex within marriage limits temptations for those that find fulfillment outside or seek fulfillment outside the boundaries of how God des designed it. Um, that spouses are to commit their bodies only to each other because sexual immorality is an issue. And because Satan tempts people due to their lack of self-control. This is serious stuff, is what Paul is saying. Satan doesn't want marriages to be maintained, the unity and the mutuality and the exclusivity to be maintained. But it's not to say that Paul is only talking about the value uh, of sex within marriage as keeping people from sexual immorality um, because he's responding to this specific context, right? That there's this idea that a general rule uh, suggests that sexual abstinence is spiritually beneficial. And Paul says, no, not for the married, except for maybe a time if both choose to set time aside for prayer. So only if there is that additional element there. Uh, the second reason that he offers 
is that the authority of one's body sexually belongs to one's spouse. So that is marriage is a situation that many are already a part of. And the reality of that situation includes sexual intimacy. So Paul thinks celibacy is great. Mike's going to talk more about that in the next couple of weeks. But Paul has in mind here that the gift of marriage, part of that is the giving of oneself to a spouse. It's a necessary ingredient implicitly here uh, in what marriage is. It's part of the gift, and Paul uses that language. And that gift includes giving of self to your spouse in that way. So there's no question uh, here about whether or not somebody has the gift of celibacy if they're already married. And this is an idea that Paul is responding to. In the last couple of verses, uh, just verses eight and nine, um, I'll touch on them kind of just briefly. Paul, Paul is talking to a group of people that are not already in the situation of being married. Uh, probably the two terms refer to widows and widowers, though it could mean just unmarried people in general. Um, and Paul kind of says it's good for them not to marry. There is something advantageous that Paul will talk about later in the chapter and Mike will talk about as well. Um, but if they cannot, or, and I think it's a little bit more likely in the Greek, if they are not abstaining from sexual relations in a post-marriage lifestyle, they should marry. That's Paul's advice. For the same reasons he gives above, it's better to get married than to burn. Uh, could be a burning of judgment, but more likely a burning of passions, as uh, most of the translations suggest. So it's better to marry than to sin is kind of what Paul is saying there kind of at the end. But as I've mentioned, Paul's response here is to a very specific situation of people thinking that there's a spiritual advantage to abstaining from sexual relations in general. And the answer is rather simple. No, not really. Maybe in certain contexts, if you're called to that, if you have that gift, Paul will un unwrap that a little bit later, but uh, it has a role, sexuality has a role, and there is nothing uh, there in marriage that would keep you from, from having some sort of spiritual advantage if you abstain. So that's just kind of a general overview, a little bit of an unpacking of what Paul's saying. It is really rather simple and about this one idea in general. Because of that, though, I think it's really important to talk about what the passage doesn't say. Uh, the reality is this text has been abused by many in the church historically for a long time, especially uh, by men as a way of getting what they want in marriage. Um, so I think it's really important to highlight these, these things. Uh, and, and I'm kind of, there are a lot of things this passage doesn't say. There are three things that I'm just going to draw out uh, about this passage. And the first is, um, the passage doesn't give authority to either spouse to demand, coerce, or force sexual relations. Um, in fact, even though uh, it's historically likely that the portion was initially responding to a situation of a group of married women who were trying to embrace a celibate lifestyle, the passage makes the claim that both men and women are equal in terms of sexual relationship in marriage, and that mutuality is at the core of this. Uh, it doesn't simply give satisfaction to the party who was offended, which may have been men in the historical context, but may not have been, but that both have obligations to the other. Um, New Testament scholar Edward Eddy Ellis um, writes about this passage. 
Each spouse is told to give sexual satisfaction to the other. Neither spouse is told to demand it. Thus, according to Paul, the sex life in the Christian marriage should be characterized by selflessness. Um, in some ways, it kind of feels like an unnecessary nuance, but I think that it drastically reinterprets one narrative of sex that we often hear today. Uh, and that's closely associated with the abuses of purity culture that we talked about last week, that sex is for male satisfaction and the wife is obligated to meet this need. And that's a lot of times how this text has been used. Uh, but it doesn't say that. It says that it's for both people and both have mutual obligations. Um, a feminist scholar, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, um, who has a lot of interesting things to say that aren't always good, but this itself is great. Uh, Paul carefully repeats every injunction in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5 in order to make sure that husband and wife have equal conjugal obligations and equal sexual rights. Paul doesn't talk here explicitly about needs or desires, um, but, but about this mutual offer, the giving of self to other, that the ideal of sexuality is realized in marriage through this giving. Um, and so when we praise, place this passage in the broader scope of Pauline writings and the letter, we know also that an ethic of love grounds and is required for all relationships, uh, marriage included, and all actions in relationships, sex included, uh, is under this broad category of love that is a sacrificial love, not a love that takes not a love that forces or coerces. First Corinthians has this kind of passage, right? First Corinthians 13. Some of you might have had that read at your wedding that kind of defines it's the love is passage, love is patient, kind, etc. And this kind of ethic rules the day even for marriage itself. Uh, the second thing that this passage doesn't talk about specifically is, is how to have a meaningful sex life. It's not a how-to guide. It's talking about this one situation. Um, it doesn't even talk about the what ifs of life, right? Of being too tired, exhausted from work, children, physical inability, emotionally challenging times, uh, shame from previous sexual encounters or narratives that we've heard like that from purity culture, um, mechanics, frequency, etc. Like it doesn't say much. Um, and those things are important. Uh, but they're just not there. So um, I think those things are important to seek help in. If you want help there, it can be awkward and shameful. Uh, later in the week, Mike and I are going to talk about some books that we can post up on Facebook. If this is an area that you want to grow in, um, there are tons of godly professional books and resources that you can look to. Um, because it's an area, even though the passage doesn't talk about it, it's an area that every marriage needs to grow, like communication. Um, so that is something that I think uh, can be beneficial. But again, it's not something that's there explicitly in the text. And a lot of times I've heard in sermons that want to elevate this position, the greatness of it, uh, they say more than what this text says. Um, and it can be complicated. Uh, I get that. Paul got it. But again, Paul is not talking about everything here. It's just that situation. Uh, finally, the passage doesn't say that sex is just for procreation. Um, this is something that uh, can be a popular theology, 
Uh, it is within the Catholic Church and other um, more conservative traditions of the church. Um, children are part of it uh, and part of the theology of marriage that we'll unpack in a little bit, but it doesn't really say anything about that here, nor does it say it's exclusively for that. And in fact, because he says that it has value and doesn't mention procreation, I think there is something to be celebrated that we can hear from that uh, as well. But, but seeing what this passage doesn't say, I think, begs the question, okay, what, what is marriage? What do we look for? How do we understand this? How does this all fit within this broader concept of marriage that Paul is probably thinking of or knows about? Um, so I want to take some time now, even though the passage itself doesn't talk about it, to kind of develop a uh, biblical theology of marriage, looking at these different trends that we see throughout scripture about what marriage is and what it's for. I'm going to be touching on a few different things that Paul is kind of drawing on or has implicitly in the background here. Uh, but this is something that I will also be only pointing to like a verse or sometimes no verses in, in these different things. But what I'm trying to do is, is help build this bigger picture about what marriage is and what it isn't from a scriptural perspective as we look across old, which of course I'm looking to the Old Testament, that's what I do, Old and New Testaments uh, to kind of see what this means for us more broadly. So taking a step back from the Corinthian letters, um, there, there are again four things that I kind of want to draw as a conclusion. Um, the first is marriage is something that God has designed, and it's something that's good for humanity. So it's built into the creation narratives themselves, uh, and something that Paul is clearly drawing on or assuming. He even quotes from Genesis earlier in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, there's allusions even in this passage to the Genesis account. Uh, and sure, sex is intrinsically part of the marriage uh, relationship, even in Genesis. Um, and we've all heard this passage, again, something many of you might have had read at your weddings. For this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they will be as one flesh. Um, it's quoted by Jesus and by Paul elsewhere about marriage. It's kind of this shorthand phrase about what it is in one sense. Um, but because God created and ordained marriage, the theology that backs us is he also instructs us on the way that it functions best. Um, so those of us who are married are married under the lordship, under the created order of God and under the lordship of Christ. Uh, in the creation narratives, it's called good. It's not simply a concept that includes rules we must follow, but it gives us the guidelines for how we can flourish within this thing that God has designed. Um, the guidelines for marriage, for mutual love and sacrifice, even sexuality, are part of something that God gave humanity as a gift for humanity's sake. So the second idea that I think flows directly from this, and that Paul actually quotes here in this context, is that marriage is a gift. Also singleness, which we'll talk about again in a couple weeks. So... It's something that Paul writes is, he uses the quote, marriage is from God. It is a gift from God uh, in the previous sense that he designed it, he created it, um, but also in the sense that it's given to individuals or to couples, not just to humanity as a whole. 
to receive. Um, and the receiving of gifts, just like salvation, which is the same word, the grace, charism, uh, has implications for how we live. A, a gift that we receive in the ancient context had obligations for what we do, kind of how we uh, reciprocate gift giving. Um, and and so this idea as a gift, uh, sometimes it's hard, it's hard to see it that way for those who are married. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't feel like a gift, but I think putting it in this context of seeing as something from God can help us to put it in its right place, uh, even through the challenging times that we all have in marriage, the difficulties, the frustrations that can be momentary or can be for seasons and years. Uh, but this, this idea, even in this ideal that it is a gift from God, undergirds what Paul is saying and even this whole theology of marriage. Um, third, marriage is a reflection of the gospel. Uh, this is, again, something that's, that's really common that we hear all the time uh, in weddings. When we hear sermons on marriage, most of the time, at least in my experience, maybe not for you, but in my experience, most of the time it's been from this Ephesians 5 text. Um, but, and, and really... The Ephesians 5 talks about marriage, the marriage relationship as a metaphor that points to the gospel, the way Christ is the perfect loving husband for his bride, the church. And there are several other places in scripture that the church is described as the bride of Christ, especially when we look at eschatologically, when we look forward to the wedding feast of the lamb. Uh, this, this has theological importance it has theology that's important for us to understand who we are and where we are at in the history of salvation. Uh, but also as a reflection of the gospel, it's also a reflection because of the missional commitments of the church, which are themselves a missional reflection of God's activity in the world, right? So in the same way that marriage as the concept reflects this, the gospel, the gospel is reflected back into marriage, that it is a, a picture of what the gospel is when it functions well. Uh, so marriage, when it's done in light of the gospel, when it functions as God intends it, uh, through mutual submission, love, service, giving of self sexually and otherwise can reveal the gospel clearly. Um, and fourth, marriage is part of life. It's pretty, it's pretty normal for people to be married and marriage itself is kind of this like normal thing. Uh, and I don't have an exemplary passage here. It's not because I have to like put down every passage that doesn't really talk about marriage in the Bible to say like, this is just one small part of the pie. Now it's an important one. It's there and it's elevated in a lot of different places in scripture. <clears throat> um, but even, even where Paul is in this passage where Paul's unpacking the, the role that sexuality, sex has within marriage, where Paul cautions against abstaining from sexual relations uh, because it has an impact on the rest of your life, even eternally, <clears throat> is part of the logic that Paul is playing from. It's absolutely an important part of life. 
Uh, and practically speaking, it's one that has the potential to actually have one of the greatest impacts on certain other areas of your life and well-being. Um, so your, your spouse is often your closest relationship. And even in Paul's time where it had slightly more of like a pragmatic function and economic function than it does today, uh, it was still true then. <clears throat> but here's, here's my point. When we're constructing this biblical theology, marriage is part of life. And all life is under Christ. Uh, so marriage and sex as part of marriage is all part of living out the reality of being redeemed by Christ, brought into his family. Uh, marriage is the primary context, and by primary I mean the first, uh, the first context that we get to live out our lives as people changed by the gospel. Um, some people have called their spouses our closest neighbor. When we think about the commands, the greatest command is love your neighbor or love God. And then second, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a neighbor that uh, lives on the other side of the bed, not on the other side of the street. Um, but it's, it's this normal, but also magnificent and great and terrible sometimes and complicated and messy part of life. And it's, it's uh, I think, important for us to situate it as something that is good something that is created by God, designed by God, given by God, but also just part of the whole way that we have to relate to God and worship him through our lives. But I want to just draw uh, this one implication <clears throat> from all of these things, uh, especially from this last point, is that marriage is not just for spouses. Um, I'm not talking about opening the marriage bed, because that's explicitly what Paul is warning against here. Um, but it doesn't just affect the two partners. Uh, it's something that God designed by God to have a purpose in creation as a witness to him. And we know it's something good. So the conclusion is it's for everyone that individuals come in and couples come into contact with. Uh, it's for children, but it's also for each other. It's for your other spouse to grow in Christ's likeness. It's for our community. Uh, it's for, again, like I said, our neighbors, our marriages serve as a place that we can cultivate the Christ-like attitudes Paul talks about in the rest of the letter uh, that we can live out in the rest of our lives. So marriage is this place that draws on the grace of God and offers the grace of God to others. It is a, it is a gift, not just for those who are married, but when it functions healthily and well, it can be a gift for people who aren't part of that marriage relationship. This marriage can bless others, children, neighbors, families, friends, cities, the world. <clears throat> okay, so all of these points have something I think to say about how marriage is often talked about today. Um, there's kind of two general ideas about marriage that are prevalent in culture kind of tying that big picture, uh, 30,000 foot summary down into, okay, well, what is it like today? Um, there's, I see two general ideas about marriage that are prevalent in our culture. One, marriage is old fashioned and irrelevant. And second, marriage is about fulfillment. And it's entirely possible that we are influenced by one or both of these in our own thinking about marriage. Um, the first makes light of marriage. Uh, it's like, 
I, I remembered this quote from a musician that I listened to a lot. It's, it's kind of what the, the musician Father John Misty said. When I was young, I dreamt of a passionate obligation to a roommate, right? This kind of plays down what marriage is. It's just something, it's a roommate that you maybe uh, live with and have a passionate obligation to, right? But it's just that. It's nothing more. So why bother with the rest of it? It's outdated. Let's just call it what it is. It's not something necessary or important. I think I made it clear, like the Bible makes a different claim here that it is meaningful and that it's created by God, it's for our good, et cetera. Uh, and it's the place where sexual relationships can be fulfilled in light of how God created humans to flourish. Um, and I'm guessing that this is probably less commonly held among our community, but it is probably something that a little bit we're like, well, Maybe it's a bit outdated. Maybe it needs to be updated in light of modern concepts of sexuality, of human identity, and things like that. But I think this second piece probably creeps into a lot of our understanding of marriage and our understanding of dating. For those who are married, we maybe feel like we, we've missed out on something we could have had. Uh, for those who aren't married, maybe we're looking forward to something uh, of, that marriage might be but actually isn't. Like there's this idea that marriage is about finding your soulmate. It's about your, having your person. I hear that all the time by your side. It's about being fulfilled in lifestyle, finding comfortability, enjoyment, uh, that person that you can sleep with and then watch your favorite TV show with. Um, but that's not really something that's inherent to marriage at all in, in those terms. Um, there, there's a, a, a TED talk by the clinical psychologist Esther Perel who is not a Christian person, um, and I should note that there is some of her advice that should not be followed uncritically in other places, but I think here she points out to this um, rather rather poignant uh, interpretation of our cultural view of marriage, and she is doing it in a way to actually say, like, this doesn't actually work. Um, she writes, uh, today we turn to one person to provide what an entire village once did, a sense of grounding, meaning, and continuity. Uh, at the same time, we expect our committed relationships to be romantic as well as emotionally and sexually fulfilling. Is it any wonder that so many relationships crender, crumble under the weight of it all, right? She's pointing out that having these kinds of elevated views of what marriage is or some kind of partnership, even if marriage is viewed as, as outdated, it can't hold that weight. It's not something that can actually, uh, finding all of your fulfillment in a spouse, in a partner, isn't something that can be possible, whether you're experiencing something like that or experiencing the opposite of that. And I see this, and I'm totally guilty of thinking this, especially earlier on when I was dating, when I was younger, and with non or with young people who got married. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that or that, that it was exclusive to younger people, but that was true in my experience that somehow in marriage, if I'm married to the right person, everything in my life will fall into place. And I know that for people who are in marriages that can be challenging, it can feel like there's still that, that narrative there, right? You haven't found the right person. You haven't, and, and whether you act on that or dream about it, uh, there is this sense in which like we still want to have this, this person become our savior, define everything that we do. Um, this reminds me of one of my go-to songs to play on guitar. When you play guitar, people ask you all the time, hey, will you play us a song? Which I just 
never really love to be called out and uh, ask at one or just when there's a guitar, hey, will you play a song? But um, Bob Dylan, you always got to have a Dylan tune in your pocket. It ain't me, babe. I actually sang this song uh, to Esther when we were dating. And I also sang this song to one of my best friends the night before he got married. Uh, and I think that this song, even though it's a breakup song, is one of the best confessions of love that I've ever heard. I mean, Bob Dylan's an amazing poet. Uh, but but he has, in his first verse, like, go away from my window, leave at your own chosen speed. I'm not the one you want, babe. I'm not the one you need. You say you're looking for someone who's never weak but always strong to protect you and defend you, whether you're right or you're wrong. Someone to open each and every door. But it ain't me, babe. No, no, no. It ain't me, babe. Uh, this song, which, okay, I'm totally reinterpreting it. Uh, it's not the intention of the song to interpret it the way I see it. Um, and also, interestingly, in this picture, Bob Dylan is actually sitting next to Joan Baez, who sang this song as her mantra of celibacy. Um, but a celibacy totally differently defined than Paul has defined it, really just as a way to find her own fulfillment outside of a relationship but still seeking kind of those same things. Uh, but, but the lines, and I didn't put these up on the slides, <clears throat> it goes on to say, uh, I'm not the one you want, babe. I will only let you down. You say you're looking for someone who will promise never to part, someone to close his eyes for you, someone to close his heart, someone who will die for you and more. But it ain't me, babe. Like there's, there's no way that Bob Dylan can live up to the expectations of, I think he might've actually been dating Joan Baez at the time when he wrote this song, uh, but the expectations of anybody who has, who has this vision that this person needs to fulfill everything that want that to define us. Um, we often look for, what we often look for in marriages are things that only the gospel can provide. I think Bob Dylan points to that beautifully, even with the line, someone who will die for you more. It's not going to be a spouse because the spouse can't do more than that. It's not going to be celibacy. It's not going to be uh, something like that. And as cheesy as it sounds, I think we're looking for Christ in a lot of our marriages. We're looking for the gospel. Like what Esther Perel said, uh, we're looking for this grounding, meaning, continuity in our marriages, in our relationships, to get only <laughs> to get what only God can give us in a single person neglecting community, but also neglecting God. The gospel grounds us by reminding us of our failings, that the cross has achieved for us what we never could, and that we receive the spirit of God to fill us and actually make us more than we can be on our own, which also means like we're going to still fail just like Bob Dylan. Like I'm not the one who's going to open every door for you. I can't do it. Uh, it speaks to this, this image, uh, that the, the gospel on the opposite side provides us meaning. It sends us on mission to bring the light of God's kingdom to bear on a broken world, even to the broken person to whom you are married, orienting our life to God's praise and glory. The gospel gives us the only kind of continuity that can provide us with something that lasts not only for this life, but for eternity a sort of staying power that even when our spouse is at their worst, God is still at his best. His presence, his goodness, and his grace provide us what we often look for needlessly in marriage. But it also gives us what we need to flourish in marriage. 
you're likely to hear this metaphor from me again, um, but, but I often like to think of the role of our gospel in our lives as a mobile, uh, one of these solar system mobiles, right? You've got all these different strings attached to these planets. But uh, what happens is when we pick up, let's say Pluto, uh, I think there's nine here, or Neptune, something like that. Whatever that may be for us, whether it's our marriage, whether it's our expectations for another person, whether it's our church, whether it's sexuality in general or sex, if we hold that up as the highest point, the whole thing falls apart. Now, you might get something of what you want from that thing if you spend all your time focusing on it, running after it, and trying to achieve it, whether it's the perfect marriage without God or whether it's some kind of sexual fulfillment within or without your marriage, right? The whole thing's going to fall apart. But when we hold up the gospel, that kind of middle string right around the sun, if we hold up the gospel, if we hold up God as the center and rightful place in our lives, we orient everything else in its proper location, right? Our lives can revolve around this thing that is so good and so tangibly helpful in every other area, sex, uh, marriage, community life. Um, we we are able to, when we, when we hold God in the rightful place, have the best flourishing, the best good that we can receive because we received God who created us for himself and created marriage for us so that we might actually reflect the gospel to others, right? There's this beautiful mixing of all of these different ideas uh, in a way that still highlights God as first and foremost. And the gospel is something that we can live our lives by and have as much as we can as broken people in this world have the most meaningful marriage most meaningful lives possible so when we look at marriage from within this context we hold god at that central location if everything that we have revolves around him and is ordered rightly underneath his lordship uh, we get this great gift uh, and we get to receive the benefits of the gift of marriage for those of us who are married and for those of us who aren't married as we receive from the marriages of others. Marriages affect our community. It affects our mission. It affects children. Paul says here, marriage is more than sex. But according to Paul, it must not be minimized or eliminated from marriage. And what Paul has told us here in this passage is that sex belongs to marriage, husband to wife, wife to husband, but all belong to God. God has given marriage for us, for our flourishing. It's a microcosm of the gospel and a reflection of God's goodness to our spouses and to those our relationship touches. From the most immediate relationships like children to our church community, to our neighbors. And as unity is something that we strive for as married people, uh, we receive it in part because it, it's the goal and purpose of marriage is unity uh, and that we're, we're able to reflect the goodness of God in something that is totally remarkable and totally ordinary. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.